the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be together. Please join me by going over to uh, ProAmericaReport.com. You will see a pop-up box. It will allow you to sign up for the daily email, the daily wink, which we send out at 8 a.m. East Coast, 5 a.m. Pacific, and every hour in between with a few key links, a few key thoughts, and often this segment which is what you need to know, the wink. And today's wink is a very important one, one that may uh, seem a little dry when I start in on it, but it w- is very, very important, okay? So I, I think you've heard me railing a bit uh, about the focus on Justice Clarence Thomas and his life. The The left wing hates the guy, has for a long time. I often hear it characterized that they hate him in large part because he is everything that they don't want to believe should happen, which is a conservative uh, black man who came from nothing, not a liberal black man who came from Harvard. Um, he came from nothing. And in Georgia, I happen to have a bit of a personal connection to him in the sense that the man who ran my college, a an old fashioned Jesuit named Father Brooks, Father Brooks ran Holy Cross where I went uh, and was a wonderful man. He was an old fashioned priest. I have a ton of respect and love for him. He's passed away. Well, he did what uh, a lot of good priests did. He didn't um uh he didn't hold press conferences about it. He didn't do it. He he went and he saw smart kids and he gave them scholarships to go to college. Sometimes they were smart Italian kids, sometimes they were smart uh Jewish kids, sometimes they were smart black kids from Georgia. Um he just wanted smart kids to have a chance. And um he did that for Clarence Thomas. Uh, and it, it transformed his life. He's often talked about it, written about it. Clarence Thomas has in his uh, extraordinary um, in the Clarence Thomas is the recent documentary that uh, really was a uh, wonderfully done. It was it was um, it was designed. I think it was initially interviews. It was a uh, lengthy interviews with the Clarence Thomas and ended up becoming a document, become a docu. excuse me, becoming a documentary and a book uh, called Created Equal. Uh, created equal Clarence Thomas in his own words. Um, very, very cool. And anyway, so this is an amazing guy. And I've been upset watching the media, especially in the left, uh, pick on uh, Clarence Thomas and saying something like he's somehow um, compromised because he's gone on vacations with a friend of his who's rich, who pays for the vacations. He's gone on some trips. Um, it's such a lie. In, 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 in a place where influence peddling is so obvious, which is to say the swamp, when you have a president of the United States whose son is making hundreds of millions of deals for hundreds of millions of dollars, you have the president of the United States, his son is making paintings as a sidelight. I mean, maybe he's the most talented guy in the history of the world. I doubt it. But he decides to start painting and he's selling them for hundreds of thousands of dollars. You're going to complain about Clarence Thomas going on vacation? You're going to complain about a real estate deal where Clarence Thomas, there was some property where Clarence Thomas grew up and the same really rich guy, billionaire, bought the property to set up the Clarence Thomas Museum for a hundred grand. 
And you're going to complain about that when Hunter Biden's got a billion dollar billion with a B dollar deal with China. And there's a list of 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 politicians who influence pedal all over the place. It makes me sick. And they're now threatening to have hearings. The, the Democrats in the Senate are considering hearings. There's complaints and the media covers it breathlessly. It's such hypocrisy. But here's why. Here's why. On the front page of Politico. On the front page of Politico, they say there's a question, the column, America's looming conflict, red judges versus blue governors. What's the problem here? What's the problem is for 30 years from the late 1970s into the Trump administration, more than that, I guess it was almost 40 years, 40 plus years, maybe say it was 40 plus years, the American scene was dominated by judges making decisions on abortion in the 70s, and then a series of decisions marching forward and dominating our lives, culminating at the low point in my mind, Roe v. Wade Wade was the worst, but culminating with the decisions about marriage where they just made it up. But lots of other examples, lots of other examples. When the courts were left-leaning, We were all supposed to say how valuable it is to have a Supreme Court and to have the Supreme Court be so serious and high-minded and that justice must be respected. If you listen closely, you are starting to hear the drumbeat. And the drumbeat, what you need to know about the drumbeat, is a drumbeat towards lawlessness. Towards you have people that say, oh, a federal judge has put a pause on the FDA's distribution of abortion-causing drugs because of how they did it, because they rushed it through, because they didn't obey their own rules. That's what the federal judge said. And not, we'll appeal that and we'll argue that or we'll pass legislation to change that. No, you have elected officials and leaders and public leaders, thought leaders, saying, we'll just nullify the law. We will not pay attention to that judge's ruling. We don't care. We're going, we're bigger than that. You have the attorneys general of states like Michigan. There was a ban on abortion. It was overturned by the vote of the people last month or three last fall. But before it was overturned, the attorney general of the state of Michigan said, I will not obey that law. You have elected prosecutors in cities who say they will not enforce that law as to drugs, as to violence, whatever. And now you have people saying, oh, we can't. Uh, the, the U.S. Supreme Court and other courts are too conservative. We should not and cannot abide by them. Lawlessness is the goal when they don't have power. In other words, when the system when the system was left-leaning, when the Supreme Court was being dominated by the moderate middle, you know, Justice Kennedy deciding that, uh, you know, one's uh, understanding of themselves was the definition of, of the, who they were and that that should not be intruded upon, et cetera, et cetera. Well, when the court gets conservative and has people that have a certain set of values, by the way, they happen to be the values of our nation, our nation's founding at least, now we have to object. Now we have to be lawless. And some of them are intellectually honest, meaning they are just now adjusting their worldview because they want the power. But some of them truly are communists who want to destroy the country. And by undermining the rule of law and undermining how we function, they undermine the country. Some of the people who are, I, I, so my point here is I can't read people's minds and I don't, I won't, don't want to bother. 
I don't want to bother to try to tell if someone is bad intentions or not. But if you're someone who is willing to say not, by the way, I'm being clear, not that you're a conscientious objector. A conscientious objector says that is the law. I can't abide by it because of my conscience. That's different than saying that is the law. I won't abide by it because I don't like it. That's a very different thing. Conscientious objectors, the classic uh, example was people in, in Vietnam era who said, I won't go to war. I'm, I'm a pacifist. I don't believe in the war. They didn't say, I don't believe that there's war. I don't believe that there's a law that says I can be drafted. They didn't say that. Some, I mean, a few did maybe, but mostly they were saying, I can't be a part of that. And you will have people that say, I, I will conscientiously object from certain requirements under the law, but I will acknowledge that there is supposed to be a law that we're under, not I'm elected prosecutor of St. Louis City, therefore I'll decide what laws I want to have enforced. Or and not and again, prosecutorial discretion is using your judgment to say this set of facts doesn't rise to that level of that crime, not I don't like that crime, therefore I won't apply the facts. It's a very important difference and we're watching we're watching the again, the narrative machine. Big government Big media and big tech putting out a narrative that somehow it's acceptable to have a preference on the law and therefore to act. That, you, you know, if you don't think it's okay, if you, if you don't, if, if stealing is, is the law, you're not supposed to steal, it's forbidden. But, you know, you're in San Francisco and you just want to kick in a, a window and take something. Well, we're not going to charge you for that. We're, we're going we're, we're, we're gonna, to we're gonna say the law is, is not really a fitting. Or in Chicago, when the, when the people are wilding that, that over the weekend and the mayor says, you know, we, we need to, I can, I, they shouldn't be violent. But, you know, if they are, we got to understand that they're coming from a hard place and we should, what? You've got to have the laws and you've got to have the respect for the institutions. And again, what you need to know is it's a systematic effort to try to undermine the institutions and try to damage the people, whether you're damaging Clarence Thomas, whether you're damaging the Supreme Court more broadly, whatever the way you want to see it, creating a nation where there is no rule of law, there is no shared sense that we're under the law, that's, that's a, a major problem. It's very difficult to see how you operate in that environment. That's what you need to know. All right, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Great privilege for me uh, personally to welcome our next guest, an author, an author many times over, uh, but in this case, uh, a book that's out called The War, uh, excuse me, The War on Virtue. Uh, and um, it is uh, a pleasure because uh, Bill Donahue, who has uh, been the president CEO of the Catholic League for Religious and Civil Rights for a long time in my life, was always somebody who, when most people were stepping back he was stepping towards the fights and, and making sure to weigh in. And so he's been given a gazillion awards. He's been at this for decades. Um, and as I mentioned, he's written, uh, I think, it's, I think it's over it's t- almost 10 books, but I, I bet you he's written thousands and thousands of articles, uh, over his time. So welcome, Mr. Donahue. How are you, sir? Thank you so much for having me. I'm 
Well, so the first thing is uh, one more book, The War on Virtue. When I when I read this book, I thought of my grandmother. You'll appreciate this, Bill, because uh, I know you'll know the type. And she, when I got to the, la- the I think second to last chapter, and it was called Rewarding Incivility. It seemed to me, I thought of my grandmother, my late grandmother, that, you know, most of the things that were really nasty, unpleasant stuff, our society has stopped penalizing. You don't even get, you don't even get disrespected for having a, uh, some of this stuff. And so I guess the war on, uh, on virtue, you're describing it is, are we beyond hope? Well, as a Christian, I don't believe we're ever beyond hope, but I know one thing, passivity will, will, uh, will, will allow us to lose. It's funny you mentioned this, Ed. Uh, I was raised partly by my grandparents from Ireland, and my grandmother used to say, there's no law in this country. And that by that, she meant that too many criminals are running free. It's nothing <laughs> like it is today. I live in New York City, and just here last week in New York, a stepfather choked to death his 15-year-old stepson, and he walked out of the court free as, as could be. I mean, yeah. in other words, even murder has now effectively become legal in New York City. It's absolutely astounding, the breakdown in the social order. I see it every day in the trains in New York, walking the streets. I'm in the Penn Station area, which is the, probably the most uh, crime-infested area in all of New York City. Uh, with, with homeless, with migrants, with drug drug users, the violence and everything else here. There are people who are afraid to, to go to the station without an escort. Uh, this is all because Bill de Blasio, the former mayor, told the cops to stand down and don't do your job and let the criminals run free. That's exactly what's happening. Uh, again, we're talking w- with uh, Bill Donahue, and uh, we're referring to his book. I think it's the second to last chapter. Bill Donahue, of course, is a longtime uh, head of the Catholic League for Religious and Civil Rights, and uh, and his uh, book is called War on Virtue. I'll put up on social media. It's funny. I was I didn't want to ask this question first because I thought I want to ask about the book, but you, but in the conclusion of the book, you refer to and you, again, you know, Bill Donahue's known for a lot of things, but it, one thing is he's a New Yorker. You can hear it in his voice. But in the book, you reference going to work in Manhattan and the riots of, of 2020. And I wanted to ask you again, I mean, at, at what point have we lost the cities? I mean, I, it's incredible to me that you're hanging in there, but most people that are, that are, <laughs> that are saying, no, maybe not, but that are uh, not as tough as you are, are saying, we just got to get the heck out of the cities. Well, that's true. I know a lot of people in Long Island where I live, as well as people in the outer boroughs and in New Jersey, uh, Connecticut, they're not coming into the city. Right. Uh, couples would come in and they go to a Broadway play, go to dinner and whatnot. Uh, people who are coming in, usually in the middle part of the week, are leaving immediately. The bars and restaurants are closing in New York because there's not enough people going going there. But look, the reason I wrote The War on Virtue is to basically say, Ed, that unless you exercise personal responsibility, right. self-discipline, and perseverance, you're not going to succeed in our society. And the ruling class should be encouraging the, what I call the vital virtues. Instead, they're discouraging them. Indeed, they're undermining them. And no group of Americans are suffering more than African-Americans. And it's not the white supremacist, crazy right wing guy they need to worry about. They need to worry about the people who claim to be their friends, the white working, the white ruling class, the elites in our society who are quick to write checks and reparations and quotas and equity policies. In other words, but they've basically given up on black people. 
They are the, the ruling class in this country are the ultimate racist because everybody else is able to succeed and so can blacks. I work with blacks for a long time in my life. They can succeed like anybody else. But the white ruling class, they won't come right out and say it, but they've given up on black people. You should encourage virtue, not destroy virtue. Uh, we're talking again with Bill Donahue, and and as always, uh, uh, Bill, I've, I can't uh, say how much I appreciate the fact that you put voice to what I think a lot of people are thinking. Uh, you mentioned this again. I, we're we're on a roll here in the book, and uh, I've got the chapter and, and why virtue matters. The first subheading is the vital virtues, and I was telling my sons this this se- sentence here. In short, success is not a function of luck. It's the result of self-discipline, personal responsibility, and perseverance. You call those the vital virtues. My point to my my sons in this case was you will you will find luck all over the place if you have self-discipline, personal responsibility, and perseverance. If you do those things, you'll find it. Now, so here's my question, Bill. Again, you've got decades of experience. The American dream, Irish kids like you and my father and others, that they were supposed to not get out. They were stuck. They didn't have the opportunity to go to Harvard. They didn't have the opportunity. They instead went to, my dad went to uh, St. Peter's College or Fordham or wherever because of Jesuits mostly. You, you got out, but you put your head down and worked and transformed the country. But that That's American, that, that America, but that American dream is, is in some ways is smothered by welfare it's smothered by terrible schools but that give you free lunch and after school because parents are strung out from work if they're working and and so we're we're sort of smothering the american dream instead of letting it rip that's right and for the most part the problem is not the parents they're true they're still trying to inculcate or instill vital virtues in their kids but they're run up against the elites who are teaching that if you teach proper spelling or mathematics in the classroom. That's an example of white supremacy. They're, right. the, let, they're the ones letting the, letting the, uh, the criminals go scot-free. They're the ones who are breaking up the family. They're the ones encouraging dependency. Uh, so it's the elites that are the problem. And they're in all quarters of our society today. It used to be just in education, the arts, edu- in uh, entertainment field and the media. Now it's all over. The, the corporations have now actually taken the side of the left, and they're working against the best interests of the average American. Uh, Bill Donahue's our guest again. His book is War on, War on Virtue, How the Ruling Class is Killing the American Dream. Sophia Institute Press. I'll put it up on, on social media. Um, if it's true, Bill, that the elites, that the, no, the, the ruling class that the, are, is stifling the American dream, and I agree with you, um, the, the question, the, the, the wonder I have is how do you break out of it? I mean, it, you, you, and I know the book, you talk about some of this and you, as you mentioned, it's not parents still want to get their kids, even if they're single parents, they want their kids to succeed. There's nobody that's sitting around saying, I want my kid to be a loser. The system, the system is smothering us. But if you, you used to be, you could be in the parish. Or you could be in the synagogue and the community would pick you up. It used to be you could move to Long Island, you mentioned, and you'd have a community around you, whether it's, you know, Kilmeade talking about the, the, the way his family was out on Long Island or, or, uh, what is the author of that tender bar uh, book about? There was a community of, uh, of people that lifted you up. Now, you, you, I guess you segregate. I mean, people go to a red state or a blue state, but it doesn't, it's not working the same way. And in a way, you, you, it doesn't seem like you can get that support the same way that you could when there was, frankly, these ethnic enclaves. 
Well, it, you're, it, that's a very good sociological analysis, Ed, but I can tell you that, that there are some encouraging signs. Remember, uh, what came out of the pandemic, that awful COVID-19, was yeah. something good. Parents, particularly mothers, found out what was going on in the classroom, yeah. Yeah. and now they've taken over the school boards. Right. The left tried to say there's, oh, there's no such thing as Latino male or Latina female. There's Latin X because they want to neuter you. That didn't work out because right. Hispanics said we don't want it. Now we have people pushing back against Bud Light for featuring transgenders. The, the, the first most prominent transgender psychologist in America, Erica Anderson, said, I used to encourage this. I'm, I've had it. I'm, I'm out. It's mm-hmm. gone too far. So there are some signs we can push back. It, it, the people in Europe were the first to go down this road of saying a man can become a woman, a woman can become a man. That's all madness, of course. That's all right. madness. Right. Uh, but they are now pairing back. We are trailing them in the United States. But what I'm saying is that the rank and file, the average American has to push back. We have to be disobedient when necessary. We need to absolutely sabotage the culture that the dominant culture is, is providing. The elites don't represent us. They represent a tiny minority. They're almost all well-educated white people. And, you know, it's interesting. If this, just take the thing about a woman and vice versa. I've looked at the survey data on this. Blacks don't believe it. Hispanics don't believe it. They don't believe it in Africa and Latin America, in Asia, right. in the Middle East. They don't believe right. it in Russia. But who believes it? In this country, the well-educated white people, and, of course, North America and Europe and New Zealand and, and Australia. Yeah. They've been corrupted by higher education. Instead of in, in, in giving them the kind of knowledge and wisdom you know, they've, they've been brainwashed. They've been indoctrinated. And they think we, the average decent American, are the ones who've been brainwashed. No, folks, it's the other way around. Don't be, don't be gaslighted by these people. Trust your gut. Hmm. Uh, Bill Donahue, again, is our guest, of course, uh, very well known for being the president and CEO of the Catholic League for Religious and Civil Rights uh, out there fighting so often when there's something uh, hot. He stepped towards it. His new book is War on Virtue, How the Ruling Class is Killing the American Dream. Sophia Institute Press, I will put it up there. In fact, I'm looking at the table of contents because I, there's seven or eight chapters. Some of them are great. Promoting racism, talking about how where the real racism is, racism is, devaluing the family, giving up on the poor, sabotaging education, and as I mentioned earlier, rewarding incivility. Um, Bill, I want to ask you one final sort of line of questions and let you go on it, if you, if you will. It, 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 and it's this. You, you for, for decades, you have been willing to go on any media and speak the truth as you see it. You have never, I've never seen you be afraid. I don't know, you know, the late Phyllis Schlafly, my boss, she used to say, she'd always say a prayer before she went on. She'd say, you know, from the, from the, um, uh, the, is it the, the, um, uh, Anima Christi, you know, from the wicked foe, from the malignant enemy, defend me. So you probably have something like that that you, you St. Michael the Archangel protects you or something, but you've never been afraid of that. But, but I have to ask you, in the environment where people that do an inappropriate meme are getting a, a facing jail time or people that do nonviolent, you know, trespass, uh, say January 6th, are facing decades in prison. It, it suddenly looks like some of the uh, unpopular opinions, they're raising the cost. You, you, you probably got mistreated by some of the ruling elite if they saw you at the country club, although I don't even know if you went to country clubs. But, you know, I don't know if you feared that they would sue you into oblivion. Maybe you did or or even put you in jail. But it feels like that's where it's headed. Well, I've been sued. I've, I've been called every name in the book. And it was thrown out of court, of course. It was, right. it was, a, it was a false, uh, bogus case against me. If I had to get bodyguards, 
Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of people say I am fearless. Other people simply say I'm just crazy. Uh, <laughs> look, I'm not. I, I got one life to live, and I don't have to lie for a living. Uh, we're motivated and we're called as Catholics to tell the truth. And that's the one thing that is under attack in this country more than anything else. The postmodernists did it in, in Germany and in, in, and in the United States. The idea that there's no such thing as truth. Well, yes, there is people. There is such a thing as truth. And by the way, one person in history whom everybody knows of who said there was no such thing as truth, who, who agrees with the left wingers, or they agree with him, his name was Adolf Hitler. I think we know what happened after that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's uh, I, I can't uh, thank you enough uh, for uh, again for coming on with me, but also for all those times you've been out there. We appreciate it very much. And uh, we'll make sure to to put the book up wherever we can. Again, the book is War on Virtue, How the Ruling Class is Killing the American Dream. Bill Donahue from Sophia Institute uh, Press. Thanks for your time, sir. Thank you so much. All right. We'll take a break and we'll uh, be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Don't forget, I will put up on uh, social media and everywhere else all the links to that and also to uh, uh, Bill Donahue's website, uh, his work at the Catholic League, uh, extraordinary stuff. We'll take a break and be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. An interesting uh, coming together of two uh, favorite topics, maybe three. Uh, and one, uh, I love to talk about books, and we have had some wonderful uh, Sophia Institute Press books on, uh, especially recently, but over the years, including one of the books was, uh, I think it, it may have even been The Pope's Exorcist, 101 Questions About Father Gabriel Amorth. Um, that, that That is a, a book that's out from Sophie Institute, um, but actually it's coming out April 18th. So there were three other books, I think, by Father Amorth and another one. Anyway, we've had a number of uh, titles, and now they've made a movie out of uh, Father Amorth. I'm not sure if it's exactly about one of the texts. We'll find out uh, from our guest, uh, who is a spokesperson for that book that's coming out on April, on April 18th, uh, uh, Jordan Burke. Welcome, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Well, so first, uh, thank you. First, um, all this interest in Father Amorth. Um, he passed away in the last couple of years. I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly. And so you, you guys published a couple of his books before. He sort of got a little bit famous at the end of his life. Um, well known in certain circles, of course, but sort of famous. And then after death, a lot more attention. What, what's been the trajectory of this, uh, of this author? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I've been kind of diving into that myself. I'm curious if this is kind of the becoming of possibly a move for his canonization, maybe not so much in the church, but in from the laity. Uh, I certainly think that he has a cause, um, although time obviously will tell. Yeah. But as for anything else, it's 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 tough to say. It's um and but but he so he had a long career. He didn't die uh, as he, uh, too young a man. I mean, he had a long life. He had a, a sort of um, when you looked at his career and when he wrote about it, um, decades of experience as an exorcist. So now there's a movie with Russell Crowe, um, which makes it a big big movie, right? It's not he doesn't do too many indie features. Was your um was Sophie Institute uh, Press's books that on Father Mort or any of them were they really you know did they buy the rights did you have a relationship with the 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 movie do we have any sense how the movie's going to be you know I honestly have no clue <laughs> no, it's not a great it's not a great answer but 
Uh, I really don't know. I know that they mentioned it to me that there was a movie being made, but they never mentioned if they had um, any rights sold. You know, as you mentioned previously, uh, Father Morth, Sophia has actually published a few of his books and he has a few others out there from other different publishing houses. Um, but in terms of the movie and how that all came about, I, it's it's all a mystery to me. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So now to um, uh, uh, the Pope's exorcist. First of all, why was he called the Pope's exorcist? Because there would be a whole bunch of people that had different roles, I think, across the church as an exorcist. So was there, was that pr- relationship particular? What was this um, priest's life like and how does it fit together? So my suspicion is because it's not really made clear in, in this book as well as any of his other books. However, that being said, he was appointed an exorcist at the time where there was a significant lack of exorcists. And unfortunately, we're seeing that same trend kind of pop up today. But in his case, he was performing up to, he estimated 60,000 exorcisms um, before he kind of quote unquote retired before he passed and and to put that in perspective he didn't become a priest until he was 32 years old and he didn't become an exorcist until he was in his 60s so from 60 to roughly 80 something years old i believe it was um he performed all those exorcisms now what that means is he had to have extraordinary faculties uh, you know, he had to, you, you generally have to request permission for each case. You know, there's, uh, permissions for epiphany water outside of uh, the blessing, the normative blessing of epiphany water, things of that nature. So, so my suspicion is after reading, you know, this book and all of his other books is that he was given probably extraordinary faculties uh, in a case that we wouldn't quite see today, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and certainly, um, it, it, the descriptions of his life, as you point out, um, he was, uh, he was an extraordinary, um, character. I mean, meaning he had, as you mentioned, uh, relatively late vocation, relatively late to the, to the exorcism. Um, he, the, uh, what what was what are the specifics of of who he was? I mean, does somebody when you read about him, does this this guy get end up in the positions he's in because he's holy, uh, because he's particularly talented? How does it? How do you describe what he? Because he became this sort of really unique figure in terms of battling real evil and demons. Um, it's it's not common. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. So when you read the the church documents on appointing an exorcist, it does mention that the person needs to be of outstanding character, prayer, quality, things of that nature. Um, and he, what's, one of the things I love about Father Morth is he's very quick to say he's a good for nothing. That was his kind of go to <laughs> phrase. I'm I'm just a good for nothing. He he had a lot of humility, mostly because he also knew that he struggled with pride, which is you know it, it's great that he was aware of it and, and fought against it. Mm. But he. He's a fascinating character because he was born in 1925 and he felt the calling to the priesthood when he was about 12 years old, I believe it was. But prior to that, or prior to the priesthood, rather, he fought in the resistance in World War II or fought for the resistance. Um, He dabbled in politics. He helped the Italian prime minister at the time draft their constitution. He wrote for multiple publications. So he's very learned. And then he goes into the priesthood and he helped with the Paulines. He was a teacher. He was an author. He was all these other different things. So a combination, I think, of what he did and what he learned, um, as well as, you know, his understanding of the faith, uh, it seems to me that it made him kind of a perfect candidate for what he later became. What he ended up doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the, uh, the, 
movie The Exorcist, the famous one from uh, set uh, record um, uh, filmed in Georgetown down by the in Washington D.C. and and sort of famous. Most people don't even remember it. I mean, in a w- funny way, it's been long enough ago. Um, but it it did set off a sort of fascination with um, that kind of thing, meaning you know, evil demons and all that. There is a part of this where. Uh, people get fascinated with something where if you talk to the real practitioners who worry, you know, fight this and worry about it, it's it's not an interesting subject. It's not a right. pleasant thing. It's actually really, really scary, meaning nasty and terrible with lots of suffering wrapped around it. Not a lot of, you know, levitation and then and then a stiff drink. It's really unpleasant stuff. Did When you read about Father Amorth, I mean, there's a part of this where uh, a guy like him would be s- sort of seared by the encounters over and over again with real evil. Right. When I think in a way, so, so you're correct. You know, there's a people, there's this instance where people develop this kind of, uh, disordered curiosity, this curiositas. Right. right. And that's, that's something to be aware of and to be on guard, on guard for. However, I, I think that in a lot of ways, the exorcists are protected and they can be protected. I mean, Father Moore threads about this. Um, but then there's also stories of exorcists who have kind of stepped out of bounds. And thankfully, they're as terrible as that may be. And the consequences that come from that, you know, thinking that they have the power rather than it coming from Jesus. Um, those stories serve as warnings for the rest of them to know, yeah, no, it's not us. It's God. And we really need to stay in our lane. Again, again, excuse me, we're talking with uh, Jordan Burke, who is a spokesperson, spokesman for uh, Sophia Institute Press and uh, the uh, book and, and a set of books. The book is The Pope's Exorcist, 101 Questions about Father Gabriel Amorth. Um, the Pope's Exorcist is a movie uh, that's going to be out. Um, Russell Crowe, I think it's out any minute, actually, maybe in a couple of days. Um, it, it, when you started to study this, uh, Jordan, did you... Uh, what's the most surprising thing about this uh, this priest, Father Amorth? I mean, again, even even you coming to it as you read it, you 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 know he he has a certain fame now. The last few years, so it's not like you can go cold to it because you probably were exposed to some of it. But when you get into the details of his life and what he's like, what's what surprised you the most? What's sort of interesting about that? I really appreciate the fact that he is not sensational at all. You know, that's one of the issues talking about these movies where they sensationalize things. And there are some things that are sensational, but that's not the reality for most cases. Right. He really understood and he told, you know, priests and exorcists, you need to read the Gospels. This is part of our faith. This is things that we have to come up against. Um, but there's nothing sensational about it. it. These are the facts. This is the reality. And this is what we need to do. So I, I think that was what I appreciated the most out of it. He took a very complex topic and made it very understandable. I think in, in particular, this book is a great entryway for anyone who is trying to avoid that curiositas and avoid that uh, sensationalism to understand, you know, outside of the Gospels, a little bit deeper into what exorcists have to deal with. What's the reality of possession, oppression, and, and things of that nature? Uh, Jordan Burke again is our guest, uh, and uh, the uh, the book which uh, is out uh, from Sophia Institute Press, the Pope's Exorcist. Under one questions about Father Gabriel Amorth, um, in part because I'm sure timing to try to get out the truth and the details. Um, there's a, a Russell Crowe um, big movie coming out called The Pope's Exorcist. Having some now some up up close knowledge, Jordan, of of this um, uh, priest, Father Gabriel Amorth, um, and what he went through and what his life was like, and then observing the culture we're in. What's your 
what's your best description or wonder about how the movie will be? I mean, it, it almost feels like me. It's to me, it's a sort of setup. If it's Russell Crowe, I think he's probably a, a decent enough guy, but they're going to have to make it, as you just said, uh, more sensational than serious. And they're probably going to make it more scary than uh, necessarily, uh, uh, you know, kind of um, satanic. Uh, and I'm, I'm being serious. There's some, something people like scary. If you really know satanic, you don't like it. So what, right. what's your, what's your feeling? as this movie is coming out in a few days yeah i'm curious to see what the response is going to be personally this is strictly my own opinion i I don't kind of i don't put that stuff in my head and that seems interesting because i study demonology as (laughs) it's it's part of my job Um, but as you've mentioned rightfully so you know this isn't something that's um fascinating or to be played with or you know it's not a hobby it's not entertainment um, is probably the best way to put it. So I, I'm curious to see what the response is going to be, but it's probably all the better that this book is coming out about the same time. So people can differentiate between, you know, Hollywood, if it bleeds, it leads yeah. and the reality of our faith. Yeah. All right. The, po- the book again, again, the books, the book is called the Pope's Exorcist, 101 questions about Father Gabriel Morth from Sophie Institute Press. Uh, Jordan Burke, uh, thank you for the time. And uh, we will certainly, I think you're right. Coming, it's a good timing because if you want to read the what's really going on and what uh, is behind things, there's this book and then uh, we'll see what the movie does. Thanks for your time, Jordan. Thank you so much. All right. We will take a break and uh, be right back. I'll put up on social media uh, links to uh, both the movie and the website, uh, and we'll see how we do. We'll follow back up. We'll take a break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, a daily look at the significant issues of our time from an experienced conservative perspective. Sponsored by Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, this broadcast continues the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly and stands against forces that mock traditional values, deny freedom of religion, slander America, and would redefine the family. Now the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. In President Trump's blockbuster speech at CPAC, he pulled no punches on the millstones that are weighing down the conservative movement. Trump declared failed former Congressman David McIntosh and his globalist friends at the Club for No Growth, who fought me all the way in 2016 and lost, and then fought me again in 2020 Senate races in Ohio, Alabama, North Carolina, New Hampshire, plus more, and lost again, are now threatening to spend money against me. No Growth members know there will be retribution. Trump is right about the Club for Growth, formerly led by Pat Toomey, who was one of the few senators to vote in support of the vindictive second impeachment of President Trump. Toomey then left the Senate and became a director of Apollo Global Management, a private equity firm profiting from globalism and from the notorious carried interest tax loophole that Trump tried to end, but Toomey was an all-star in preserving, according to a lobbyist who was speaking with Bloomberg News. Club for Growth has lost many elections, and its campaign spending is too small to have any real influence for good. It spends less than half of 1% of the overall expenditures each election cycle, and Trump refers to it as the Club for No Growth, an assemblage of political misfits, globalists, and losers. Without a doubt, the Club for Growth is just one example of a millstone around the necks of the conservative movement. Have you ever tried to swim while holding a weight? It's nearly impossible. Similarly, the conservative movement will never be able to reach its full potential if the Club for Growth is actively working against conservative interests while absorbing large amounts of cash. Anyone with any knowledge of the movement could tell you exactly what is going on, but only a courageous leader like President Trump 
actually would be willing to publicly call out this harmful relationship. We need more leaders like Trump, who are not beholden to the financial crumbs cast off by the big powerhouses. Let's lead on principle and be wise as serpents as we craft our campaigns. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. What's the best way to rekindle the spirit of Phyllis Schlafly and the grassroots movement she energized? In this digital age, patriots and pro-family Americans can find insight and inspiration on our website, phyllisschlafly.com. Then, share your own heart and mind on social media. So join us at phyllisschlafly.com and every weekday for the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. I need to finish up very quickly. Uh, I've got only 30 seconds more. Uh, Let me say, uh, besides thank you to Noah Dingley and to Ryan Hyde, our producers on this, uh, let me encourage you again, ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. We've been growing our followers, uh, people who are uh, getting on our uh, Wink, our daily email list. So you want to head over there. It'll pop up as a box there. And also, com is where you can find all the writings of John Schlafly and Andy Schlafly. Uh, they've been getting a lot of attention for their columns, and you've heard John Schlafly on here. So uh, thank you, as always, for tuning in to the program. Pass it on to other people. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, especially on Twitter, at Eagle Ed Martin. Uh, pass it around, and we will be back tomorrow. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.